As we come today to God's Word, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, those first four verses that are well known to us and very important verses. Now, as we start a new journey through a new book of Scripture, this is going to be a, a long journey because it's a long book. There's a lot here and a lot that needs to be covered, and it's one of the greatest books of Scripture. It's a hard thing to judge because they're all great. They're all equally inspired and truthful and important for edification and all those things that Paul talks about. Uh, but there are some books that feel like, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones once gave the example of that in church history, it's like a range of mountains. And uh, some are like, you know, some lower mountains. And he said, then you come to the Puritans and then ultimately to the Reformers. And I think he said Everest was Edwards. But, uh, and I said, maybe the Bible, we feel a bit like that. Like all these books are these high peaks of mountains. But there are some that seem to just be remembered a little bit more. God has used them in mighty ways, and certainly Romans might be the Everest in that sense. But Hebrews is very close second, I think, very close. Hebrews is an amazing book, a mysterious book in some ways, a book that I think we'll gain a lot from. It's got the reputation for being a difficult book. Um, But I think if we take our time and walk through it, we'll see the arguments that are given here and why they're important to understanding the truth about the scriptures and how Christ is the fulfillment of all that God has been doing and that there is no way to see Christ, understand who he is in any way, and then turn back from him. There is no fallback position. Uh, And that's really going to be the argument here of of Hebrews. So we're going to consider these first four verses. We're really going to look at the first two, and we're not even going to do that in depth today. We're going to really kind of use this as an introduction to the book, and we'll begin really to look into this next Sunday morning, but I want to read the text again. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Those are words we know well. We've heard them before. They're important words, though. And notice that the author of Hebrews is like, let's just get right into it. Let's get right into talking about Jesus. And I think that's important. You know, from the very beginning... Uh, He's talking about God speaking, about who He's speaking through, and about the importance of the one who is now being spoken of and will be referred to over and over throughout this letter, and that is Jesus Christ. This letter focuses on the person and work of Christ. And so I am really excited to, uh, to begin this journey. As we consider this awesome text of Scripture, and we want to desire to begin our journey on good footing, we want to look at three points. First of all, Hebrews' mysterious history. Second of all, God's glorious revelation. And third, God's perfect revelation. If you're not used to the style of arguments that are given in this letter, it can be a little bit uh, off-putting. And and that's always been the case with Hebrews. Unless you were an Alexandrian Jewish Christian who understood the argument style of of Philo or whatever, you might have difficulty with a letter like this. It is a, a letter that's argumentation is not like some of the other books of the Bible. There are places 
where we see similar styles of arguments, but not an entire letter like this. And in fact, calling it a letter is itself a challenge because it is a letter. The ending of it, in a sense, makes that clear as there's some uh, personal things said. It, cl- it makes it clear whoever wrote this letter uh, was familiar with the recipients of the letter and they with him. There's language there that says they knew each other. But we come to the fact that this letter is a letter that we don't know a lot of, those background things. Who wrote it? Well, we really don't know. What city or country was it written to? What church? We really don't know. Who were the recipients of it? Well, we have a little more general information about who they likely were. When was it written? We can narrow that down pretty well. But there's a lot of debate over all these things. And so you might say, well, why would we study it? Why is it important if we don't know much about the background? Those background details that really help us to understand a letter of Scripture. Think about uh, Paul's letters to the Romans as we went through it. We talked so much about Paul and about the church at Rome and what we knew about that church and how that letter uh, was really addressing certain issues within the church. You might say, well, we don't know those things. Why is Hebrews important? Well, what's amazing about Hebrews is despite there always being a recognition that they didn't know these details and there was debate about them, everyone pretty much recognized that this is an inspired word from God. There was always, now, obviously, like many of the books, there's some debate here and there, but generally speaking, all people recognize, even if we don't know who wrote it, we know one thing, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and therefore is worthy of being not only included in the canon of Scripture, which they saw as as God's decision, but also studied and, and looked into. Now, we want to, for a moment, talk about a few of those issues because they really are important. They really are important. Uh, who wrote this letter? Well, uh, in the early church, there was a number of options, and most of those have been really challenged. They're difficult to hold up. Um, in Alexandria, they said, we think it was Paul. Paul wrote it. But if you just read this letter... It doesn't really feel like Paul. If you, if you read Paul, you begin to recognize his voice. It doesn't sound like Paul. It's not in the kind of Greek that Paul wrote with and this sort of thing. It doesn't really fit. But again, it was very early on attributed to Paul, and so that's held. Even uh, Arthur Pink argued that this must be the work of the Apostle Paul, even though all the difficulties that entails. Other people said maybe it was Barnabas, uh, maybe it was Clement of Rome who's the first person to mention quotations from this letter. There's all kinds of arguments, none of them very strong, to be honest with you. And there were a whole lot of others, uh, you know, Philip the Evangelist, and you could just go down a list of people that have been suggested as the authors of this letter. By the time of the Reformation, it was kind of widely recognized that it wasn't Paul, it just it didn't make sense that it was Paul. It doesn't sound like Paul said a minute ago. His quotations of the Old Testament Scriptures aren't the way Paul does it. His uh, style of argument doesn't sound like Paul. That's generally held today that it is not Paul, although it returns. People return back to Paul over and over because it's a comfortable answer. It's a comfortable answer. And there are parts of it that does sound like Paul. Certain argumentations that you go, uh, that sounds like something Paul might have said. But Always, it'll be followed by some way that Paul didn't usually refer to things. And so it's been challenging. What's been known about this author is he is a Hellenistic writer. He's a Greek writer. Hebrew is not his primary language. Greek is. This is written in the most 
fluent and well-educated Greek of any letter in the New Testament. Again, Paul's writing doesn't sound like that. Now you say, well, that might be explained by the fact that Paul didn't write his letters. You may remember in Romans, we might say, well, Paul's the author of the letter, but as you read Romans and approach the end, it says, I, Tertius, am writing this letter to you. Right? Paul has a, a scribe, someone there to, to dictate. And so, again, that might give some variance in style. But the truth is, most of Paul's letters, you recognize Paul. You hear his voice. You, you say, the guy who wrote Ephesians is the guy who wrote Romans, is the guy who wrote Galatians, is the guy who wrote First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians. You recognize the voice. Hebrews doesn't quite sound that way doesn't quite sound that way. So it's a Hellenistic writer who writes in a polished Greek. He has knowledge of the Old Testament sacrificial system and priesthood, an immense knowledge and understanding of these things doctrinally. But it doesn't seem that there's any way that he's speaking of them that he has firsthand experience. It seems like this is a man who's learned about it immensely from the Scriptures, and particularly from the Septuagint, because that's what he quotes, the Greek Old Testament. That's what he quotes. And so again, we come to this point, who is this person? Who is this person? So by the time of the Reformation, they kind of said, well, it's probably not Paul, but they went through all these arguments. I think Luther looked at this evidence and said, wait a minute. Uh, uh, A person who is familiar with Hebrew concepts, but not primarily a Hebrew speaker, a person who was a Hellenistic writer, uh, who's familiar with an Alexandrian form of, of rabbinical argument, a person who was clearly well-educated in the Old Testament Scriptures and the Septuagint, Luther said, who else could it be except Apollos? Who else could it be? An Alexandrian Christian who was, the Scripture says what? Was mighty in the Scriptures. Now, was Luther right? Here's the truth of it. We're going to return over and over back to what Origen said. Who wrote Hebrews? Only God knows. Only God knows. So again, it's good to think about these things. I'm not sure that we're going to get very far thinking about them. And besides, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author here. And so we can rest assured at that. In fact, as many people have argued in in, uh, writings about this, uh, it very well, in fact, I'd say since it's the, the Word of God, it was God's intention for us not to know for sure. This letter really is an argument on how Christ is the fulfillment of all things. It's not an argument on Paul's life or ministry or Apollos's life or ministry. And so again, uh, we want to recognize that there are important things here. So we just continue on. We're going to see more of the same in a sense. What was the city to which this was written? Well, we really don't know. Was it Jerusalem? I don't think so. I think Jerusalem's fairly easy to eliminate as the recipients of the letter for many reasons. The style is not the style you would have written to Jerusalem in. It, it deals with some concepts that don't sound like you're speaking to Hebrew primary speakers, but to uh, Hellenistic Jews. Now, there were Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. But again, uh, most people have kind of eliminated Jerusalem as the location this letter was written to, although that was a very popular uh, argument early on. Some people think Rome. There's a quote in the letter that the Romans are greeting you. And again, they think, oh, this must be wherever the author is. There's some uh, Romans who are exiled or living there who are sending back their their greetings. Again, uh, we don't know. We don't know. There's a lot of evidence. We could get into an entire uh, hour-long discussion on this. 
on evidence within the letter. A lot of internal evidence. There's things about not to neglect the larger fellowship written to this group of people. Some people say, could this be written to the church at Rome in the divide that Paul's dealing with in Romans? And he's dealing specifically with the Hellenized Jewish Christians, telling them you need to reconcile back to the larger church. Could be, could be. But really, the power of the argument doesn't rest there anyway. The power of the argument of this letter is Christ is what the Scriptures are about. All of it points to Christ. And so, again, there's a lot of frustration as you look at things. What can we be more sure of? Who are the general types of people this letter is written to? Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. People who have entered the church, seem to have given their life to Christ, made a a profession, confession, whatever you want to say, and uh, have been living in the church as Jewish Christians. But as persecution has been coming on, and it, he's saying it's going to get worse. And there are some who are noticing, hey, you know, the Jews are being left alone largely, whether the persecution's coming from them or just simply directed at Christians. And you have examples of both in the ancient world. Oftentimes it was... Uh, Jews that were persecuting the Christians. And oftentimes, the Roman authorities left the Jews alone. They were an approved religion, but Christianity wasn't. And so there seems to be a number of Jews that say, you know, it's a lot more comfortable back in Judaism. A lot more comfortable. And really, we're worshiping the same God anyway, aren't we? We just have to give up the name of Jesus. We can return back to a more comfortable place to dock our boat and not deal with all this tempest and storm. It's pretty clear that that is what's going on here. And the author of Hebrews uh, is giving this letter as not only an address to those concerns, a word of encouragement, as he calls it, to this people, but a very stern word word of warning in this letter that you can't do it. You cannot return back to what you once had once you have encountered Christ. That there is no safe secondary backup position. That Christ is the revelation of all that God is doing. And that you cannot claim to love the Father while rejecting the Son. The very thing Jesus said. You cannot claim to love the Father and reject the Son. And so there is a stern word of warning. Now, one other thing we can be a little more sure of is when the letter was written at one point this was debated. Was it written as early as 50 A.D. and maybe as late as 100? And uh, we've been able to narrow that down, I think, pretty well through the years because Clement of Rome quotes this letter in 96, I think it is, A.D. He quotes the letter in Rome, leading some people to think it was written to Rome. That's why they had it early. But there's an even more important detail. As the author of Hebrews talks about uh, the Old Testament, Testament sacrificial system, As he walks through it, he doesn't speak of it as past tense. He speaks of it in a sense that it's continuing, that it's going on at the time of his writing. And so that's led most people to say this must have been written before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And so that is kind of the view of of scholarship today, is this was written likely in the mid to late 60s A.D. Uh, That would also give a little more difficulty with Paul being the author Uh, if it was written after he died. So again, we can see the logic of that. But let me say one more thing about Pauline authorship. Uh, A lot of people say, well, maybe what this is, Luke in Acts has notations of sermons that Paul had given. 
that he quotes in Acts. And so it's led some people to say, could it be that somebody took notes from a sermon or a lecture or something that Paul had given, did it in shorthand, and then later themselves, with Paul no longer there to give them the fuller argument based on those notes, they just wrote out their own argument from it. God might have chosen to work that way. We don't know. Again, we're going to come back to the same argument again and again. Only God knows. But, but whatever the case, this is an important letter, an essential letter. Uh, that's why God has given it to us. And it's a letter that's going to address some very real concerns and some things that I think we need to think about today, especially I think today. There's a message for, for Christians today in this letter. And I'll come back to that as we close today. So as we uh, move now to our second point, we want to recognize that the main argument here of the first four verses and really of this letter is that God has graciously revealed himself to man. Now, I could just refer us back to Paul's argument last Sunday morning in Romans. We went back to Romans 10, and Paul uh, is basically making this argument, right? Uh, Quoting Moses in the the Torah, he says, uh, Moses said, where can you go to get revelation for yourself? Now, I'm just putting it in, in common speak here. He says, where could you go? What height could you climb? What depth could you go into? What ocean could you cross to find God's revelation? And the argument of Moses is if God had not spoken to us, we would have nothing. Right? If God had just said, uh, these people that I've created, they've fallen into sin, forget them. Forget them. Moses' argument is there's nowhere we could have gone to access God. Now Paul makes an argument, this does not contradict it, of general revelation in, in Romans chapter 1, that the, that the creation itself declares the glories of God. No question about that. But is that a saving knowledge made available by God? No, that's a general revelation. The argument is that God has spoken through special revelation in a way that opens up the doors to salvation. So again... As Moses argued, where could you go? And again, Paul piggybacks this argument and says, where could you go to get your own salvation? Where could you go to bring Christ near? Where could you go to do these things? So Paul is showing the logic of this argument that if God had not initiated revelation, we would have nothing. There would be no word from God if God had not given it. Now, maybe somebody would make up a word from God. Maybe somebody would, as we have this happen anyway all the time, don't we? People who said, oh, God has given me a message, and here it is. He says, I need another jet and another vacation home. And if you want to be obedient to Him, you need to do what He says. Now, my friends, we know there are charlatans. There always have been Paul was dealing with that in 1 Thessalonians. He didn't want to be lumped in or misassociated. And people think, oh, he's a charlatan. So he said, I took nothing from you when I came. I took nothing from you. I came and I toiled day and night. I worked by day to provide for my needs. I worked by night to evangelize the community. I wasn't taking from you. What kind of charlatan comes and sacrifices for the people? My friends, all of this goes back to this same idea. God is the one who revealed himself to us. And so again, as we come to this, we're going to see that that brings us right to the point here that the author of Hebrews is pointing to. We serve a God of revelation. A God who has chosen to reveal himself to man. 
wasn't obligated to, didn't have to, but by grace did. That's why we say it's God's gracious revelation. And right off the bat, the author of Hebrews wants you to know that. Look at what he says. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. You didn't know where to go get him. He brought the message to you. And you can see lots of examples like that, can't you? Abraham wasn't looking for God. God came to Abraham. God said, Abraham, get up out of Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place I'm going to show you. Abraham said, God's speaking. (laughs) What am I going to do but do what he says? Again, we see this over and over again. God didn't speak in one way and at one time in the Old Testament, did he? That's not what it says here. It says he spoke in many ways, at various times. At various times. Polymeros means to be in parts. In parts adding toward a whole. So the idea is he gave some revelation here, he gave some revelation there, he gave some more here and some more there, and you see that. Now what's amazing about the revelation of God is when you go back and look, it's amazing what all he gave us from the very beginning. That's what Luther was getting at. Once he had come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, he said it's like the gates of heaven swung open. And when he went back and read the entirety of Scripture, he was like he was reading a a whole new book. Suddenly I saw where it said, Abraham was saved because he believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He said the message was there from the very beginning. And yet, important details were added along the way, weren't there? There's a reason we don't just preach Genesis, right? We move on to Exodus because there's revelation there and Leviticus and so on and so forth. And by the way, these books of Exodus and Leviticus are going to be very important as we walk through Hebrews. You might uh, challenge yourself to sit down and read those books over the next few weeks. They're going to help you as you think about the examples that the author of of Hebrews is, is pointing to. But again, there's further revelation. We come to Isaiah and there's revelation. There's even correction, isn't there? Oh, you think because you come to the temple and you offer up your offerings and you run through the motions that everything's fine with God. But Isaiah says that's not the way it is. Your heart's not in it. You're just running through external motions. External religiosity saves no one. And Isaiah says, God says he's not even hearing your prayers any longer. Again, is that revelation from God? Yes, it's a warning, a revealed warning. And we can just move on and on and on through the Scriptures. There is revelation. So in various parts, God has explained and given and revealed throughout time. And by whom? Many different people. Many different people. Moses, yes. But David, we just mentioned Isaiah. We can go through a lot of prophets and men of God who were used. In fact, that's what he says here. Our fathers were spoken to by these prophets, these spokespeople for God, these servants. These ones who sometimes foretold the future. And other times simply foretold or foretold the the will of God and the word of God. And so again he says, you've heard from them at different times and in different ways. Our fathers heard from them. They passed this down to us. And so we've heard the revealed Word of God. 
So not only in many parts, but in many ways. What could that mean? Polytropos, what could that mean in many different ways? Well, some people he spoke directly to. Some people, like if we go back to Genesis, Joseph was given dreams or the ability to interpret dreams. Right? God has spoken in many different ways. He's saying he spoke through prophets and men of God and, and kings that he appointed who worked in maybe not a, a foretelling, but a forthtelling way. He spoke in many different ways. All these parts adding up to the whole of what we call uh, the Old Testament Scriptures, the Tanakh. He says, but if you look at it, there's greater and greater revelation as it accumulates. There's no question that, um, that it should have been the case that after you were reading Malachi and everything that came before it, you'd know more than if you just had Genesis. So there's a greater, greater, greater and greater accumulation of knowledge about God that's been revealed through all these ways and all these parts and all these men, all these uh, people who God has called forward as prophets to give the Word of God in this revelation. That's what he's saying. There's a lot of knowledge that we have that's been given to us. Our fathers have handed it down. It was collected by them. It was spoken to them by prophets called of God. But as we come to our third point, notice there is a word of continuity and a word of contrast here. The same God is speaking. The author of Hebrews, as he comes to this idea of God's perfect revelation, says there is continuity. It's the same God talking. It's the same God who gave us all these pieces along the way through many godly men. It is this same God who's spoken again. But notice there's also some contrast, also some discontinuity. He talked about times past, and now he talks about times eschatos. In this last day, in this last era, in this last time, God has spoken again. Now notice it's no longer worded as through many ways, through many parts and parcels. Now it's spoken in a more singular fashion. God has spoken in these last days by His Son. By His Son. Notice before, servants. Notice now, Son. That should definitely get your attention. Uh, You can certainly think about it. I mean, you could turn to, in fact, let's do that. Matthew 21. Matthew 21. This gets the same idea. Jesus is telling a parable. He says, hear another parable. This is verse 33. Matthew 21, 33. Hear another parable, Jesus says. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they may receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Not much respect for the servants, right? Not much respect for the messengers. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, I'm sure you know this text. You know that there's a reference being made here to the prophets, the very prophets that the author of Hebrews has just been referring that God had sent to their fathers. 
just think for a minute, what could you do? You've sent messenger after messenger, servant after servant, no one's listening. What's left to be done? Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now that's a, a word of judgment. And those who had never uh, respected the prophets that God had sent and had persecuted them and killed them, and now they're doing the same to the son. And he's telling them, This is what you're doing. Why should we be surprised that you're not listening to me or accepting my words, you haven't listened to anybody God ever sent to you. But don't think I'm just another servant coming. Jesus is saying, recognize that there is a difference in status. This is the very thing that the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. By this same contrast, God has sent servants in times past. Men, godly men, men used by God, He has sent them and you've not listened to them. In this case, He says, our fathers have heard what they said. But notice the contrast here. This time He sent somebody much more important. He sent His Son. He sent the second person of the Trinity. Now, we want to preserve the glory of Christ. We want to make sure we understand this correctly. That's why if you notice, whenever we talk about the gospel and I say something like, God sent His Son who freely came. Okay, we're talking about economic relationships here within the Trinity. We do not want to give the idea that Jesus is some lesser person of the Trinity. There is an economic relationship by which they are working together. That God is doing the work here uh, of salvation. And that is what this idea is. But again, he says, notice here that he's not sending just another servant. He is sending his beloved son. God Himself has come this time. The second person of the Trinity has come and taken on flesh, and He is the ultimate prophet, if you will. We've had this sermon every Christmas. I do a sermon on the Incarnation, and we talk about the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament offices. He is the perfect priest. Wait for it, we're going to come to it in Hebrews. He is the perfect king. He is the perfect prophet of God. The perfect priest is the one who represents man to God, but he's also the perfect prophet. He represents God to man. Who better is there to fill that role than God in flesh? God who comes and gives the word. There is no greater fulfillment. There is no greater picture. There is no greater revelation than that. He is the fullest. He is the final, the last day's revelation of God. Pictured here and revealed in His Son. Now notice, He goes on to say some things that we're going to look at next week. To speak of the glory of Christ, He appointed Him heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's our Christ. Glorious, perfect, awesome, able to reveal all that needs to be revealed. There is no later prophet we're waiting on. This will be part of the argument, really, of Hebrews. There is no further Yom Kippur to be fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus by His blood. 
not needing to be re-sacrificed day by day, over and over, year by year in the case of Yom Kippur, but finally completed in Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation. He is the one who came, and God has spoken fully and finally through. That's why when you hear these people on TV that say, oh, God gave me a word last night. He gave me a word. He spoke to me last night. Let me tell you the revelation. I say, I don't need it. I don't need it. Because the only way I would check it anyway is to go to the Word of God, and if it is in agreement with it, I don't need your revelation. And if it doesn't agree with the Word of God, then it's garbage. So I don't need it. Either way, I don't need it. The author of Hebrews is telling me this. God has spoken finally in these last days by His Son. And when you stack it with all that have been revealed before, you have everything you need and all that you're going to be given. Does that mean that God doesn't speak to us through His Word? No, that's why it's given to us. God speaks to us through His Word. That's how He reveals to us today. We are illuminated by the Spirit of God who's given to us at our salvation, and we ought to be thankful for that. But that is the way God speaks to us, through His Word. Now, does God bring to mind Scriptures? Could the Holy Spirit do that? Of course. Of course. That's why we're to hide His Word in our heart. But again, you're not receiving a new Word. You're being reminded of what God has already said, fully and finally, in Christ Jesus. And so, my friends, we need to recognize that is going to be extremely important to the argument of Hebrews. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. And to not have Jesus, my friends, is to fall short of what you need. To fall short of what you need. Intro sermons are always difficult. They're always difficult because you've got to give some factual background stuff and it's, it's a little bit frustrating. But I want to close by saying why I think this letter is extremely important to Christians today. Extremely important. Maybe the most important letter we could study right now. And the reason for that is we are definitely seeing an increase in persecution against the church. It's mild here in America compared to what our brothers and sisters deal with around the world, but it's on the increase. There's no question about it. It's on the increase. And you're seeing it. You're seeing it. And Christians need to know where they're going to stand if difficulties come. Where are your church leaders going to stand when difficulties come? Where will you stand when difficulties come? These are things we need to be thinking about. The author of Hebrews says, listen, I understand you're thinking in a sense that you think that you can retreat to a safer position by giving up Christ. But think of what it means to say you give him up. And how does that even work? There's going to be a lot of deep theology as we get into this, but it's important theology. What, is it, what does it say for a person to have claimed the name of Christ and then give him up? I think John gave us the answer, didn't he? They left from us because they were never of us. And I think what the author of Hebrews says is think of what this testimony will be if you give up Jesus, if you walk away from him. It's saying we never had part and parcel with him. My friends, it is a serious message and it's a worrisome message. And as you read this message and you see those warnings like in chapter 6, they are terrifying. They were intended to be. They were intended to shake Christians out of complacency or those that claim to be Christians out of complacency and to think about what it would mean to walk away from Christ. My friends, we're not at the point where um, 
where I think that's happening here. But if it did, I will not be surprised to see people and churches turn away to wherever the comfortable spot is. I won't be surprised to see it. I think you've already began to see it. And some of these uh, things that are already creeping in that are kind of, I, I don't have any problem saying, corrupting the gospel. Whether it's the social gospel movement or all these various things today that you see that are, that are moving along. It's going to get less and less comfortable to stand on the Word of God. Will we do it? The author of Hebrews reminds us of what Peter said, Where else could we go, Lord? If you are trusting in Christ, if you believe that He is the Son of God, the incarnate Word of God, where else can you turn? Who else has the words of life? They're to be found nowhere else. And so, my friends, I'm going to ask you as we journey through this, and I have no idea how long we're going to be in Hebrews. We'll see as we go. The girls were asking me last night, how long do you think we'll be? I was like, I have no idea. I have no idea. But however long it is, I pray we'll be thinking about these things. We'll hear this as not a message only to people 2,000 years ago, but we'll hear that God is speaking to us today through this message. Where will we stand when trouble comes? We read a psalm this morning about Christ being our sure rock, right, our strong tower, this mighty fortress, as Luther put it. If we believe that, then we'll basically trust in Him and lean on Him no matter what comes. My friends, the author of Hebrews says there's wisdom in that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this day and, Father, for this letter. Father, I pray for Your help as we move forward week by week. This can be a challenging letter, Father, so I just pray that you would help not only me to preach it, but uh, also uh, all those here to hear it and receive it. And Father, as we think about this letter, there are many things we don't know. But one thing we do know is that this letter tells us that our salvation is in Christ Jesus and nowhere else. There is no other place that we can turn or is worth turning to that if we have Christ... We have the telos, we have the fullness, the aim, the point of all that's been given before. He is the summation, the fullness. And so, Father, we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful that we stand not in our own unrighteousness, but in His righteousness. That because You revealed Your Word to us and and sent Your Son who freely came, that we have life in Christ by putting our faith in Him because of the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Father, I pray that whatever we do in this letter, it will always point us back to Christ Jesus. For that is the author of this letter's intention. And your intention, I believe, as well, Father. So, Father, help us, I pray. If there's a person here today who realized they're trusting not in Christ, but in themselves somehow, their work, their goodness, their knowledge, that they would realize that on that great day, none of those things will stand. That the only thing that will stand and avail is Christ's righteousness. So, Father, I pray that if there's someone here today that recognizes that they need Christ, that today would be the day they would trust in Him. And Father, I pray for those of us who are yours that we would recognize the importance of this message because none of us know what tomorrow holds. None of us know what difficulties may lay ahead. 
But one thing we can know is that Christ is there with us if we are His. Father, I pray that we would be comforted by that and that we'd be thinking about those things as we continue our journey through this incredible letter. Father, again, we pray for your help in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.